Hello, everybody. Welcome to Care Talk. Uh, this week, I'm coming at you live from Washington, D.C. Uh, we are on location for Care Talk this week. My name is Laura Packard, and I am a stage four cancer survivor and executive director of Healthcare Voter. And on this show, we answer your health care and health insurance questions and help you navigate the uh, American healthcare system, which is extremely hard to deal with, as uh, many of us know from personal experience. So uh, I would like to kick it off by answering some of our viewer questions. Our first question today uh, is from Kathy. Um, they want to know, can my son sign up for uh, health insurance through the Affordable Care Act now? He has no income and signed up for private insurance for uh, $207 a month premium. Uh, and here to answer that is Zoid from Health Sherpa. Hey, so there are a few different parts to this question I'll need to address. Um, so what type of co coverage your son can qualify for right now is going to depend in part on what state he lives in. Most states have expanded their Medicaid programs, meaning that most people can qualify for free or low-cost health coverage if they make below around $1,600 a month. So if he's in a state that has expanded Medicaid, he should submit an application through the state Medicaid office, um, and then he would be able to continue with Medicaid for as long as his income remained below that limit. Um, if he is not in a state that expanded Medicaid, it gets a little trickier in these states. Most adults who make below $13,000 a year um, fall into what we call the Medicaid gap. Um, I'm so sorry. One second. We will be right back with that answer after uh, the canine uh, interruption is taken care of. Uh, and um, we will keep answering your health care and health insurance questions. And uh, this week... Uh, Pay attention to the news because there may be some news regarding uh, insurance through the Affordable Care Act. On Tuesday, uh, President Biden is scheduled to do an event uh, talking about the affordability of uh, the Affordable Care Act. And uh, we don't know yet what is going to be announced on Tuesday, but uh, pay attention to the news this week because there may be health care news. Uh, and Zoid is back to finish answering the question. Yeah, sorry about that. My uh, dog forgot where he was in the house for a second. Um, so, um, in, so in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, uh, most adults who make under $13,000 a year fall into what we call the Medicaid gap, which means um, they don't qualify for any subsidized coverage unless they are pregnant, disabled, or have dependent children. Um, so, but it's important to know that on the Affordable Care Act marketplace, subsidies are calculated based on your income for the whole year, not just this month. So in your son's case, if he can say in good faith that he doesn't have income right now, but he expects to make more than $14,000 this year, he can apply on the marketplace and likely get a subsidized plan. The other good thing about that is that even though we're out of the open enrollment period, there is now a special enrollment period for folks with low incomes. So if he thinks he'll make between about that 
13, 14,000 and around 20,000 in 2022. That gives him the ability to enroll at any time this year as well. Um, and he also would have a special enrollment period for other reasons, like if he recently lost um, coverage, like from a job. Um, so there's a few different ways he may be eligible. Um, look into Medicaid first. The nice thing about um, the um, application through the marketplace is that it will screen for being eligible for Medicaid as well. So he doesn't have to call a bunch of numbers, go to a bunch of places. He can simply go to healthcare.gov. Um, he can call into Health, Health Sherpa or look for a broker or a sister in his area um, with that. Great. And also, uh, we're assuming that uh, Kathy's son is over 26 and is no longer eligible to be on Kathy's plan. But if your son is under 26, um, may be able to sign up under your insurance, too. That's right. So our next question is, uh, tell us more about that uh, special enrollment period going on right now, because the, the usual period for uh, the Affordable Care Act is at the end of the year, right? Right. So normally open enrollment period is in the fall. That's when anyone can enroll in a plan for the next year. Um, we are currently in the special enrollment period, which means that normally you would need a qualifying life event to enroll or change plans. So the most common qualifying life event is losing, losing health insurance coverage. For example, you lost your coverage through your job or you were on Medicaid and your income changed, so you lost Medicaid. Um, there's also qualifying events such as having a baby, adopting a child, um, moving or divorce if um, you, know, you lost coverage because of the move or divorce and marriage if one of the spouses was covered in the 60 days prior. But um, there is also now a new special enrollment period, as I said before, for low-income folks. So um, it's um, for people who make about, it's it's under 150% of the federal poverty level, which translates to about $19,000 a year for a single person and $40,000 uh, for a family of four. So if you make under that, um, you, you may be able to enroll at any time this year, even if you don't have another qualifying life event. So big takeaway, like even my answer to a lot of these questions is if you're not sure if you're eligible, it's, um, you know, ask, go to healthcare.gov. You can call their call center. You can call us at Health Sherpa. We have um, licensed agents, consumer advocates who are able to assist. And then also you can look for local brokers and assisters who will be able to help you determine if you're eligible for a special enrollment period. Thanks. And there's uh, been a lot of news lately about how uh, millions of Americans that get their health insurance through Medicaid maybe losing their health insurance in the next few months. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening and what people can and should do if they might be affected? Absolutely. So what is happening right now is um, most people who are on Medicaid, they go through a redetermination every year, which means that Medicaid takes another look at their income, asks them for updated information, and determines if they should still be on Medicaid or not. Due to the public health emergency, um, CMS asked states to not do these redeterminations. Essentially, states were given extra money for keeping everyone on their Medicaid. Um, when the public health emergency comes to an end, however, all those redeterminations are going to start back up again. So that is a lot of folks um, to be redetermined kind of all at once. And also information may be more out of date than it typically is. So it could have been three, you know, almost three years 
where someone has not actually updated their information with Medicaid. Um, so Medicaid may not even have um, some of their enrollees, you know, updated addresses, phone numbers, emails, um, and not to mention their income information. So this could result in a lot of folks losing Medicaid, both who um, should still be on Medicaid and who no longer qualify, but may now qualify for um, a plan through the marketplace. So if you are currently on Medicaid, there's a couple of things you should be doing. First of all, um, make sure you have given up-to-date information with your Medicaid office. Um, some um, places you're able to do that online, others you do have to call, um, but make sure they have your updated contact information and income. Um, the redeterminations have not started yet, so if your income has changed and you would no longer qualify in a normal um, kind of time, um, you're not going to be kicked off right away, but it could happen once those redeterminations start. Um, and that's why having that updated contact information is also important. Um, and also start looking into, you know, if you, if you might lose Medicaid, if you aren't offered health insurance through a job, um, then you can start looking into marketplace plans and preparing for that. Um, we, there is going to be kind of a 90-day warning that the, the government gives to states um, before they kind of kick off this process. So the earliest we're looking at it starting is August 1st, um, but that's still very up in the air. Um, and some states, it's going to go faster. They're, you know, they might only, they might take... Um, might go through the, the redeterminations quicker. Other states may take longer. So the timelines from there are also going to depend on the state. Um, but you know, now is the time to start updating your information and looking into that. Absolutely. So this is something that if you are on Medicaid now, you should be aware of, but it probably won't be happening until late this summer. Well, now it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest for today's episode, uh, author and reporter T.R. Reed. He is the author of The Healing of America, A Global Quest for Better, Cheaper, and Fairer Healthcare, which is one of my favorite healthcare books. And he's going to talk about why all the other advanced democracies can get better health outcomes at half our cost here in America. So welcome, T.R. Reed. Um, I think the, a key point to make about healthcare in America is it's expensive. This year, we're going to spend $3,900,000,000 on healthcare. That's a three and a nine and 11 zeros after it. That's more than we spend in total for housing, for food, for education is six times as much as we spend each year to have the most expensive, most powerful military in the world. It's a ton of money. It's about $11,000 per person in the United States just for healthcare. And guess what? We don't have to spend that much. In fact, all the other countries like us, I mean by that advanced high tech free market democracies, uh, <clears throat> spend vastly less on average they spend four to five thousand dollars per person per health on health care as opposed to our eleven thousand and guess what they have better outcomes all the other rich countries have longer life expectancy in the united states lower infant mortality a lower rate of neo of mothers dying and childbirth better recovery rates from major diseases and injuries and for the most part the other countries like us, advanced democracies in Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, Australia, are doing better for less. Uh, in, in my view, this is terrible. I mean, I say 
we ought to provide health care for everybody. I go around the country saying this, and, and you know, some, some Americans think this sounds like socialism or something. We don't want that. It's un-American, isn't it? No, I think what's un-American is to pay twice as much as a Frenchman and get less in the deal. They have better health care than we do and spend vastly less. Um, and so the question I've been asked to answer today is, how do they do it? How do they manage to provide health care and have much better outcomes, better recovery rates, and spend less? A key reason, uh, one re a reason that applies to all of them, is a fundamental decision that all the other advanced democracies have made and we never have, and that is all the other countries, France, Germany, Britain, Sweden, Norway, Italy, Spain, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all the other rich countries have made the commitment to provide health care for everybody. If you're in their country and you get sick, doggone it, they're going to treat you. They're going to care for you. The only industrialized democracy that has not made that is the world's richest country, our country, the United States. Um, at the moment, we're at about, according to the Congressional Budget Office, we're at about 30.2 million Americans with no health insurance. As we just heard from Zoid, um, when the COVID, uh, quote, emergency is ended, that number is going to go up to 32 or 33 million Americans with no health insurance. Um, and guess what? The fact that we don't insure them is a major reason why we're spending more than everybody else. Uh, and the reason is those uninsured people, I mean, many of them, you know, spend their lives limping or going on injured limbs or they can't go to school because they're sick. But eventually they do get treatment in our country. And the way they do it is when they're really sick, they go to the emergency room and that's the most expensive possible place to get health care. Um, I asked the health minister in Great Britain, who was a guy at the time in uh, Tony Blair's cabinet, his name John Reed, probably a cousin of mine, he was a Scot, and I said to him, why do you provide health care for everybody? And the first thing he said was, why don't you? You're such a rich country, why doesn't America do it? And uh, he said, well, uh, for one thing, it saves lives, it keeps people alive. You know, in the United States, according to the National Academy of Sciences, about 22,000 Americans die every year of treatable diseases because they couldn't get to a doctor. We're letting our neighbors die of diseases that could be cured because they don't have insurance and they can't go to the doctor. So for one thing, covering everybody saves lives. If we had health care for everybody in our country, like the other countries, those 22,000 people wouldn't die. Uh, the number was significantly higher, incidentally, in the last two years, COVID. But there's another reason the Brits, we cover everybody because guess what? It saves money. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I'm going to cover more people and spend less. But the answer is yes. And if you want, just take a look at my book where I went around the world looking at healthcare systems. All the other countries spend less on healthcare and they all have much better health outcomes and fewer deaths. Uh, at, with less spending by covering everybody. Now, why would that be? Here's why. Let's take, for example, a, a convenience store clerk, a gas station uh, attendant, a hotel maid who does not have health. And let's say one day she feels kind of a vague pain on the right side of her abdomen. Well, you know, 
it would cost her $130 to go to the doctor. She doesn't have that. She's not going to do that. She's going to work through that pain. This is what people do who aren't in insurance. And guess what? Three months later, that vague pain is going to turn into a burst appendix because she had an infected appendix. She's going to be in the emergency room. That costs us about $36,000, and we will treat her. Under federal law, if somebody goes in the emergency room with a life-threatening problem, the hospital has to care for her, even if she has no money. So we'll spend the 36000 and then the way they make that up is they raise the fees that they charge people like you and me with insurance. So by not covering people, we're actually raising our costs and spending more. We ought to provide health care for everybody. And it wouldn't be hard to do because the other countries can show us the way. In my book, I go through the various ways that other rich countries uh, provide health care for everybody. There's not one model. There are several different models for how to do it. You can do it with private insurance. In Germany, uh, there's no Medicare. There's no Medicaid. Everybody is covered with a private insurance plan. You have to have inquired. And uh, Germany has much better health outcomes than we do, and they spend about 63% of what we do per capita. Britain, in Britain, healthcare is government's job. It's like the Veterans Administration in the U.S. I'm a U.S. Navy veteran. I go to the VA. I get very good care. You go to the doctor or the hospital in Britain, they treat you. They're very kind to you. They give you your pills and no bill, no bill, because they've decided that government should provide health care. Britain has better health outcomes, better health statistics in the United States, and they spend about 44%, less than half of what we spend per capita, and they cover everybody. Uh, so my argument is, if we were willing to learn something from the other rich countries, we could do what we ought to do. We could provide health care for everybody. We could have much better health statistics. We could rank with the other countries and spend probably half or 60% of what we're spending now on healthcare. This is something we ought to do. So I've just said we ought to provide healthcare for everybody because it saves lives, it gets people back to work and back to school, and it saves money. But you know what? There's one more reason we ought to do this. Uh, we have an ethical obligation to care for our neighbors. Uh, we have a moral obligation to help other people, and if we don't help them when they're sick or injured, then we're not meeting our basic ethical obligation as human beings. Um, all world religions teach this, that we have to care for the sick. Um, Jesus Christ, in the 25th book of Matthew, one of his disciples says to him, hey, what do I have to do to get into heaven? What does it take to be a good person? Christ gives one of his fabulously interesting answers. He says, well, how, what does it take to be a good person? Uh, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was homeless, you took me in. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. And when I was sick, you cared for me. This is a fundamental ethical obligation. All the other rich countries have recognized it. My argument is it's time for the United States to recognize that obligation too. Thank you. So one of the things I got uh, from reading your book is understanding that there isn't any one perfect way that every country has done it a little differently, uh, that there are many different models to choose from, but every model is better than what we have. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's correct. And one of the major reasons is because we have so many different approaches. 
We have about 150 million Americans on private insurance. We have, what, what's the number now, Zoid, about 64 million on Medicare, maybe 70-some million on Medicaid. We have 9 million either in the military or the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, other health services. We have this incredibly fragmented system, hugely drives up the administrative costs, both for the payers and for the doctors and hospitals. A single unitary system that covers everybody in, a, in an intelligent way is always going to be cheaper. In America, of that uh, $3.9 trillion I mentioned, about 30% of it doesn't pay for health care. It pays for paperwork, for administration. Um, and uh, maybe 20 to 25% of what we spend goes for administration. Germany, Britain, Japan, South Korea, they're spending less than 5% of the, on administrative costs and all the rest. We could do that too if we came up with a coherent system that, that uh, covered everybody. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I find interesting is it seems like uh, all the other countries have figured out that the one of the issues with uh, private companies mixing with uh, a, a public need like insurance is um, profit. That when yeah. companies are allowed to make profits off of denying people care or uh, like that seems to be a problem that other countries have solved. What do you think about that? Yes, that's accurate. Uh, there are other countries that have private health insurance companies, Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, France has them, Japan has them. Um, but the difference is they're not allowed to make a profit. They basically operate as charities. Their role in the world is to keep people healthy. Whereas if you look at the big four in the United States, Humana, Aetna, Anthem Blue Cross, and United Healthcare, their role is to provide a dividend every quarter to their investors. They're there to make money. And of course, the way you make a profit in health insurance is by taking in premiums every month, but not paying any bills. And so they fight like mad not to pay for people's bills. Their, their interest runs directly counter to the interest of keeping people healthy. And that's why all the other countries have said, we don't want for-profit health. Uh, it just it doesn't work. It's a contradiction. So where do you think uh, we, we go from here? I mean, I know the Affordable Care Act made progress, you know, limiting how much profit private insurers could make off policies and, you know, 80% of their funds had to go towards care. Uh, but in the system that we live in, a fragmented system, multiple different pieces, and also states that are experimenting with different um, different ways to go, like the public option in Colorado, uh, how, how do you see fixing this mess that we're in? What, what pieces should we be looking at? You know, we're going to fix it. I say we're going to fix it because uh, Americans always do the right thing eventually. We should not leave 30 million of our neighbors without health insurance. We shouldn't let 22,000 people die every year of treatable diseases, and we know that. Uh, about in the year 2000, about 70% of Americans said we have the best healthcare system in the world. This year, the polling shows under 40% of Americans, most Americans know that we're paying more and getting less for healthcare. So we're gonna fix and the question is how? Well, one approach would be to set up a federal system for all like Medicare for all. And I, I don't think we'll ever have Medicare for all because it's politically charged, you know, it sounds like socialism. 
So they'll change the name to AmeriCare or Medic, you know, some some you know some kind of different name, but a federal insurance plan for everybody. That would work. That would be a good way to do it. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think because, and the reason is, the insurance companies, drug companies, and the hospital companies have so much clout in the U.S. Congress. They basically control what kind of healthcare legislation comes out of Congress. So I think we're more likely to get to universal coverage on a state-by-state basis. That is, one, two, or three states will figure out a way to get this done. And when it works, other states will copy them. And this is a tried and true way to bring about policy change in America. I mean, a lot of the really big policy ideas in our history, female suffrage, child labor laws, universal free public education, uh, interracial marriage, same-sex marriage, marijuana legislation started in one state and the other states see that it works and adopt it. And so I think what's going to happen is one, two, three states will come up with a plan to cover everybody at reasonable cost. If Colorado does it, then Utah, Kansas, Nebraska, and Wyoming will have to copy it. They'll be embarrassed. And that's how it will spread. I think that's how it will And Zoid had a question for you. Go ahead, Zoid. Yeah, it kind of uh, dovetails off of what you were just saying with how this is going to happen. Um, do you do you see us eventually, you know, if we do this kind of piecemeal state by state, that turning into kind of a federal Medicare for all, or whatever it ends up being called? Do you see it? We might go more the way of Germany's model, where it's private insurance companies, but they're they're going to function differently, I guess, kind of how do you, like, what model do you think we are more likely to end up in um, and getting away from the Uh, fragmentation? When I started this work and I went around the world and looked at healthcare systems, I thought, well, the German model is where we're going to go because it's all private. There's very little government involvement and uh, the private insurers, private hospitals, 98% of the hospitals in Germany are private private doctors, private labs, private drug companies. Whoa, that's capitalism. That's the American way. But I don't think that's going to work in the U.S. for this reason. In Germany, uh, they're all private insurance companies, but they're strongly regulated by the government. A German health insurance company has to cover every doctor, every hospital. They can't have the narrow networks that are insured. Uh, German German companies... Uh, they, they can let you drop your plan at any time and you can sign up with the next guy and he can't raise his rates. In America, they sign you up for a year and you're hooked. You can't get out. Um, and uh, in Germany, get this, the German insurance company is required to pay both the patient and the doctor within three days of every treatment. American insurance companies sit on your money for 30, 60, 90 days to get the float. And they don't want to change those things. Those are crucial to their profits. So they are not going to allow Congress to make the kind of rules that would make a system like that work. And that's why I've now concluded that some kind of government insurance system like Medicare, where government is the insurer and the hospitals, docs, drug companies are all private, is the way we're going to end up. Uh, And if you look at American insurance now, the most popular, the insurance system with the highest satisfaction among its users is Medicare. 
And it's also one of the lowest cost systems with a very low administrative cost. So it's a system that really works. And I think that's how we're going to end up. In polling during the 2020 election, 58% of Americans said they wanted to see Medicare for all. Uh, we can't get this out of Congress because the insurance companies have too much power there. But Americans want to see this, and I think we're going to end up. And I wonder, uh, I know that uh, I think it was Center for American Progress had a plan that started um, babies. Uh, Once you were born, you would be on a universal system. And I wonder if something like that might be an easier sell or, you know, taking it off the top. I know that there's been discussions in the past few years starting a Medicare at age 60 or 55, like because it seems that taking on the entire system at once, given the fact that financial interests determine what our system looks like, like, you know, biting the whole thing off at once seems like it's too much to ever chew, but maybe there are ways to build uh, towards eventually getting there, but not, not doing it all in one bill. Yeah. I think either of those graduated approaches is a good idea. Um, Any baby who's born starting May 1st of this year is covered by the federal plan for the rest of her life. And then gradually all Americans would be covered that way. Another way to do it would be, uh, for example, when Medicare was put into effect in 1965 by Lyndon Johnson and uh, Wilbur Mills and the House of Representatives, their plan was to start at 65. That was the Social Security retirement age then in five years go to 60, in five years go to 55, then 45. If they had done that, every American would have health insurance today. Um, And I think that might be a politically viable way to do it because the insurers really don't like people between 60 and 65. They start going to the doctor. They cost the insurers money. So I think we could cut it back to 60. That would be popular. Maybe cut it back to 55 and gradually get to uh, coverage that way. I think that's a good point. This may be the way we do it rather than the one fell swoop kind of thing. Um, At the state level, uh, the the plan we had in Colorado was uh, cover everybody with a a state-run insurance plan up to age 65 and then the rest stay on Medicare. Um, I think maybe a state could do the one fell swoop thing up to age 65, but you're right, as a national uh, matter, doing it in phases seems to be more politically doable. Yeah, I think that most people at least are in agreement of where we need to go. It's just how do we get there, given the the way that our government is set up now? Yeah, um, so that's an interesting question. Do most people want to do this? Some people, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, talk about uh, there's a right to health care. Doggone it, everybody has a right to health care, and we got to provide it. And I've said that in speeches around the country, and a lot of Americans don't like that idea. They think we have too many rights already, you know, a right to health care. That just means a right to dig into my pocket to pay your hospital bill. So a lot of Americans kind of rebel against the right to health care. But it turns out if you say the same thing in different terms, they agree. If you say, doggone it, if one of my neighbors is sick, I think we ought to provide her the health care she needs to get well. 96, 97% of Americans agree with that. That's a different formulation of the right to health care, but it's a good way to put it. Um, when we, we just, uh, I was just on the governor's task force in Colorado on health care, and we did a survey of Coloradans 
and ask this question, should, should we, do we have a moral obligation to provide health care for everybody? Uh, interestingly, 6% of Coloradans said no to that. They said, no, healthcare is a, is a commodity. It's a luxury. If you can afford it, you get it. And if you don't get it, tough. That was kind of striking to me. But the other 94% of Coloradans said, yes, we have an obligation to care for our neighbors and particularly when they're in need because of illness. So Americans agree with that. They don't like the idea of a right to healthcare, but they do accept the notion that we have a moral obligation to help others. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Everyone should read your book, The Healing of American by T.R. Reed. Uh, And uh, please tune in next week to Care Talk. Uh, Keep asking your questions, phone and text them in, and we will get you answers in future episodes of Care Talk. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Great to be on your air.